Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tron Conquest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Talk House Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got a pair of guests who I can call legends without hesitation. Shirley Manson and John Doe. Doe is a founding member of the insanely influential punk band X, which started life way back in 1977 in Los Angeles. They were part of a scene that leaned into hardcore punk, but X set itself apart by sneaking elements of country and Americana into their blistering records and live sets. And the chemistry between Doe and his co-lead singer Exine Cervenka was legendary. In fact, it still is. Though the band has split a few times over the years, they're now actively rocking all these years later, and in fact released a really great record in 2020 called Alphabet Land. It was their first in about 20 years. Doe has also been an active solo artist as well, and he's got a great new album coming out May 20th, 2022, called Fables in a Foreign Land. It's a concept record whose tales take place in the 1890s. It's dark and folky and includes some songwriting help from a bunch of amazing folks, including today's other guest, Shirley Manson. Manson, of course, is the singer and front person of Garbage, which she's been a part of steadily since the early 1990s. Garbage was formed by producer Butch Vig, he of Nirvana's Nevermind fame, and was a massive success right out of the gate, with hits like Queer, Stupid Girl, and Only Happy When It Rains. They even did one of the best James Bond themes in recent memories, The World Is Not Enough. The band has released a steady stream of great records over the years, including last year's No Gods, No Masters. A bonus track from that album, Destroying Angels, was written with and features both John Doe and Exine Cervenka, and an entirely different version of it also appears on this great new John Doe record. Here's a little bit of it, Destroying Angels. In this chat, Manson grills Doe on his intentions as a songwriter, and he asks her about Garbage's process as well. Manson wants to know whether Doe considers himself a singer or songwriter first, and she refers to Butch Vig more than once in her charming Scottish accent as Butchie. They also talk about the afterlife and how playing new music for the people closest to you can be a little bit deflating. Enjoy. How the hell are you, John Doe? This is such a thrill for me. I'm doing pretty well. How about you? Um, I can see this is just going to go up. This is like a tennis match between you and I, both loath to actually say how we are. <laughs> so I'm going to jump right in because we have got a limited amount of time. And I really want to congratulate you on your new record, Fables in a Foreign Land, which I think is beautiful. I'm going to continue this tennis match and you can't stop me because... <laughs> <laughs> You're not the boss of me. Um, no, uh, same to you on No Gods, No Masters. Yeah, so like eight, nine months. Thank you. But even the fact that you've listened to it thrills me, I have to say. I've been listening to the hell out of it, and it's like, this is not easy listening. This is rough stuff, baby. Well, you know, it's interesting you should say that because everybody has had very sort of strong reactions to it. But listening to your record, I was like, oh, John and I are like on some similar things tangents but you do it so much more gracefully 
Well, thank you. Thank you. But I, I'll leave that up to the public to decide who, you know, it's just different approaches because garbage is different than what, you know, I'm trying to do. And Well, that leads me then to one of my questions, which is, what are you trying to do? Like, what is your intention? I always feel like that's such an interesting ask of an artist is like, what was your intention setting out on making this record? Beats the hell out of me. <laughs> it's the mystery. After working on it for a while, after getting three or four songs, then I realized, oh, I can I can do this. Am I up to the task, like with with my discipline, to keep it within the parameters that I just set up? And right along with that is hopefully transporting somebody to a place that they haven't been, and to do it with some poetry and and some beauty and some you know, melody and ugliness and, and uh, you know, challenge, but to, you know, to really just to transport somebody, to make a world and hope that people want to go there is my dream. When you sit down to make a record, are your intentions formed or is that something that as the process of recording goes along, it, you know, the theme of the record or the intentions of that particular record sort of emerge and present themselves? I would say the former I have a pretty good idea of what I want to do. I I love the process of just going into a studio, being there for a week or two, and it being a record of what happened. Mm -hmm. Do you write in the studio? With the X record we did, and that was a beautiful thing. Like we rewrote stuff just to fit and make it better. I would imagine that you guys write quite a bit in the studio. We do almost all our writing in the studio. Wow. We never, ever demo anything up, really, except maybe with the song that you and I and the band did. Right. But um, in general, yeah, the, the process is, is all done in the studio. But so, I mean, I, I'm so fascinated, but I've got so many questions. I hope you'll indulge me because, you know, you've been in this iconic band for so long. And I was wondering, you know, what the difference of approach is when it's your solo record, when, when you yourself are the only one who's going to take the flack or the glory. How that changes your process, you know, writing, producing, and playing. Sometimes I feel like I've been in this in that iconic band too long. <laughs> it's just no. Uh, like uh, how how long have you been married? Too long. Yeah. Because no. being in a band is complex, right? I like to say it's just like a family. Yeah. And if people think about what families are like, then they go, oh, oh, right. Yeah, I guess that's a good description. Because they've got the crazy, crazy fucking uncle or aunt or whatever. Is that why you do pursue your own thing? Because it's less complicated. I just do it because I have other stories and emotions and, you know, different values or dynamics that I want to sing and do, communicate that just don't fit with X. Mm -hmm. And that's that's cool because you can't do everything. And um, if you do, then you kind of do nothing. Then it's mm -hmm. like, what? Who? what is this? Who are you? What do you actually do? I'll hear people in a coffee line. I heard these, these two guys talking about, you know, one guy's the barista, the other guy just got his, you know, fucking oat latte. And, and they're talking how they're both musicians because a lot of people are musicians in Austin. And they're saying like, yeah, man, you know, I've been doing like a lot of electronic and, uh, you know, some EDM and but, uh, you know, like lately I've been getting together with my with my buddies and we're doing some punk rock and, you know, and it's like, 
what the fuck do you do? And what the fuck are you talking about? You don't do anything. You think you can do everything, but you don't do anything. So Harsh words, John, do. I, well, you know, you got to have opinions. It doesn't mean it's right. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't mean it's right, you know. Sure. It just That's just the way I feel. It's just different stuff that I would like to do. And the writing is somewhat the same, except I don't have the help of Xene's words. You know, some, some X songs are... You know, I'll write the words and she'll do the editing and then other ones she'll write the words and I'll, you know, find the music. And um, But one big lesson I learned on the last X record, and I would love to hear your take on this, the last X record and this one was if something doesn't work, like chord changes or words or the melody or something like that, just change it. I love that you said that. Because there was a long time that if it didn't work, then it was like, oh, we've got to you know, wrench it into place. And obviously that's the fucking death of a song. I'm 100% on the same page as you. Something took me a while to learn, though, is that if the idea isn't thrilling everyone in the room, then change the idea. Yes. But I think people get very precious about their ideas and and they have an idea of where a piece of work is going to go and then they're tied to that and it can be very damaging. I mean, sometimes it can work, but very rarely. And I was struck by that actually when Garbage worked with you in the next scene of how willing you were. Because, you know, when you go into an artistic endeavour with somebody that you've never really worked with before, you have no idea how it's going to turn out, right? Or somebody might turn into a raging asshole. And I was really hoping it wouldn't go that way, but you just never know, right? But I was really struck by how easily we all worked together and how willing you were you know, to change things and how brave you were to say, sure, I, surely I think you should change this. And the next scene too, you know, I think we just all worked so well together. And we're also coming into your house. Were you polite because you were in our house? No. No, no, I can, I can honestly say, but, but I think it's important to be, you know, deferential if you're going to somebody's, you know, it was like, this is your record. It's got garbage you know at the top and so you got to play along and and that's you know some of what's wrong with the world we don't want to get into that too much but um we knew that you guys would be welcoming we knew that just just from hanging out when we did we knew that it was going to be a safe place although butch is a taskmaster and you don't i'm not telling you anything new but uh he likes everything very very particular in in a a place for everything and everything in its place. I think that's because he is a drummer. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like singers tend to be a bit more messy. (laughs) But anyway, (laughs) talking of singing, I love how your voice sounds on this record, on this new record. And I was really struck by your use of vibrato. Yeah. Where does that come from? Because of course I was like, ooh, there's like little hints of like, Lucinda Williams in here and, mm. and Dusty Springfield and Chrissy Hine. But of course, that's just my projection. I was just wondering where your love of that sound comes from. Because it was really struck me on this particular record. Um, there's a, a younger friend of mine uh, named Tom Brousseau, who's a folk singer. And he has a terrific vibrato, very high and very fast, kind of like uh, Joan Baez. Oh, wow. And Joan Baez was one of my, you know, childhood heroes. And there's a guy that nobody knows named Sam Hinton, who was also a folky that I listened to as a kid. Because that, I mean, that's where my love of folk music came from. Because in the States, in the 60s, adults gave kids folk music, which is insane. Because it's like Woody Guthrie, Lead, Lead Belly, you know, it's all about 
murder and and getting drunk and and you know traveling and and all this you know crazy shit. And it's like, oh, here, give this to the kids. <laughs> it's like the, de- <laughs> the devil, the devil appears frequently, and wives are hitting their husbands over the head with frying pans, and, and <laughs> you know, just good, just good old fun. <laughs> Fabulous stuff. <laughs> I think that was my introduction to storytelling because you know, folk songs have stories. Sure. As far as vibrato, it, it just sort of happened. It's not intentional. It's just sort of what, like, what song dictates it, and I'm sure you get that same thing. Sure. I try on every record to try different stuff as a singer because, I mean, why not, right? Why not use what's available to you? Um, I battle with uh, Booch. He hates vibrato. I love vibrato. So that's an issue between us. So I I employ vibrato as much as I possibly can. (laughs) (laughs) Like like Uh, whatever he'll let you get away with. Yeah. And but I also like to exercise different, you know, colors in my voice and it does often depend on on the material. Mm. But you know, I was wondering if because you've worked with Xene for so long, you know, she's thought of as a sort of iconic singer. Do you think of yourself as a singer? Is that how you view yourself? I know that just sounds like a funny question because I know of course yes. you are a singer and you're a very good singer, but I was curious what your relationship is to that. Um, I think that's kind of what I do best. I love that. Like I do, and, and when I play solo, I do a number of cover songs, and and it inevitably the cover songs, maybe because people know them, but I inevitably sing the cover songs better than I do my own. But I don't. There's some people that I know that are great writers and great singers, and they they actually kind of hate it. They actually kind of hate performing. They have mm-hmm. a lot of performance anxiety, and I'm really fortunate that I don't have that. Yeah, it's such a gift, isn't it, where it's easy. I did a show just last weekend in Fort Worth with this trio, and we do this old Mexican folk song. And um, I actually learned it from Harry Dean Stanton because we worked together, and, and he's a, he was a lover of, um, like, he learned several songs in Spanish because he thought it would help him get laid, which is like so, <laughs> so Is typical. that why you sang in Spanish on this record, John? No, no, it's not. <laughs> but I learned this song called Cancio Mixteca, and um, it's in the soundtrack of Paris, Texas. And I learned this song, and I'm we're singing it in Fort Worth. And um, there's this couple, like in their probably late fifties, uh, Latino couple, and the woman is singing all the words, and she's just she's having such a good time. She's like, because the song was written in like 1910. Wow, incredible. So it's, it's this traditional, like, Mexican folk song. And here's this woman that she and I have probably little in common, except we're living on the earth and we're humans. But we, we both know this song. And, like, that kind of fills my heart and, and makes me glad that I can do what I do. Sure. Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the TalkHouse podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of TalkHouse is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. 
More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. Where are you? Did you come back from UK? I did come back from the UK. I'm at, in, at home in Los Angeles. So we're about to start rehearsal on Monday. So oh, had to come home. Oh, that's exciting. It is exciting. We're sad that you guys are not going to be with us. We love touring with you. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope that sometime we get to do the Garbage X tour. That would be incredible. One day in our dreams. But I've always got this amazing memory of... Of being on tour, we, we were, of course, opening for Blondie and we were all mm-hmm. on this traveling circus together. And um, I say that for the benefit of the uh, the listener, not not for you, John. I know that yes. you know what you were doing. Yes. Yes. But um, I have this incredible memory of one day, and I don't know what city it was in, but it was like something like 120 degrees outside. Oh, fuck oh, yes, I do remember God. that. And you turning yeah. up at my door, my dressing room, absolutely sodden. And you had been this like... You know, we're all in love with you. You know that. And um, we all all think you're a handsome devil. And you always looked always so debonair and you were dressed in a suit. And like, mm-hmm. you just looked like, you know, cooler than a cucumber. And you arrived at my door, bright red, absolutely drenched in sweat, in your shirt. Your jacket was off. And you said, kiddo, you better put on some sunscreen. <laughs> and I, my, I, my jaw yeah. like dropped open. But that is an abiding memory that I have of you, of your caretaking, which of course made me love you even more. Oh, that was brutal. <laughs> but I, I, oh, the glamour. I, I, I love that, that tour. It was so fun, you know, and, and it's, we had just done some stuff with Blondie and, you know, the fact that, that Debbie and, and Chris Stein are just, so available and Clem's always, you know, poking around and like peeking his head in and stuff like, just like, it just gives you faith in humanity that people who are truly icons will just come and be your pal. And Debbie would come in when we did the stuff with Blondie, she would come in and said, she poke her head into the dress, our dressing room and she said, where's my little friend? Um, <laughs> Talking yes. about Xine. Where's my little friend? Oh. Well, she's very <laughs> generous, isn't she, to to everyone around her. It's, it's remarkable because, like you said, A, she's a true icon. Yes. Which is really rather rare. And B, she shares the space with everyone. She's not hogging it. Do you remember if you did put sunscreen on or, or, or not? Of course I did. I was literally <laughs> terrified. I mean, I am a white girl from Scotland. I am not used to A, the sun or the heat. Like I nearly died out there. It was terrible. I was very grateful to you because I think I put something on extra sort of light so that I didn't die. Yes. So thanks for saving my life, John Doe. I shall never forget it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to add that to my bio. Yeah, there you go. And I saved Shirley Manson's life. By the way, people. By the way. I was highly amused as I was listening to Fables in a Foreign Land when I got to the line, I hope it it don't rain. I was like, what? 
Do you hate the rain? No, I, not like you do. No, I love the rain, as you know. So then when, of course, I came stumbled upon this line, I was like, what? Yes. Well, it, I, I was thinking of the privation that this character, our narrator, could be a man, could be a woman, probably is a man, but could be a woman, uh, what they're experiencing, you know? Mm-hmm. And the first song, Never Coming Back, that was probably the fourth or third or fourth song I wrote in this cycle of songs. And I thought, oh, cool. Now I really have a center a taking off point of a record, which I think is really important. There were, there's plenty of records that, you know, you, you're, you're working away. And then when you get the first a song that you think, oh, this could be a first song of the record. Mm, delicious. Then, yes. Then you're like, yes, thank yeah. you. Thank you. Great spirit. Uh, Thank you, uh, vapors that just fly around. (laughs) But with uh, Down South, it was inspired by the sky in Texas, which is insane. It's vast, but there are also these just puffy white clouds that just show up, mostly in the the spring and the summer, all the way through the fall even. And they just show up in the uh, mid-afternoon. And the whole Mm -hmm. sky is just filled with all these clouds. Wow. And it's a it's an incredibly hopeful moment within a song that is pretty dire, you know. He he's got to sleep on the ground, I, you know, everything is uh difficult, but then he wakes up in the morning and uh you know, look at that sky, look at them clouds. I hope it don't rain like it did, did down south, meaning there was this other time that was really bad. So it was yeah, there's a hope springs eternal part of that. Sure. I mean, you have quite a deep relationship, I think, with nature, don't you? I do. That's that's my God, if there is one. I think there's a name for that. You know, people that just worship the... Or the did the Druids worship the land or something? <laughs> I have no idea, but probably. Are you a Druid too, John? In my past life, I would love to think that I'm Native American, but that's probably a mm. big reach. Yeah. Are you are you religious in any sort of organized way? I'm spiritual, much more so in the last uh, maybe s- ten years. Why is that? I think because I'm getting older. <laughs> I don't I don't expect that there's going to be uh, you know heaven and harps and you know bullshit like that. But you know all those things that over your over the course of your life, all these things happen by quote coincidence, and it's not. There's a there's a reason for some things coming through when they do or or you make a you make the best of it or or you make something great you know i i don't believe that Exine and i moved to los angeles within 6 months of each other just cuz i think that was fateful and and so you have enough of those experiences and then you start thinking well maybe there is something more i love talking to people about what they believe and and i noticed then in the record, and you must forgive me because I can't remember the title of it, but it's the third song and you're questioning, like, where has the Almighty gone? Yeah, See see the Almighty. See the Almighty, I lo- I, which I love. I love that song so much. And I felt it was very similar in theme to our song, Waiting for God to Show Up. Right. And then you say, see the Almighty in a blade of grass, and which refers to what you've just said, that nature is kind of a God for you. Um, again, that was like, what is this person who's traveling, who's got it, who had to leave home, what are they going to experience? They are going to be alone and forsaken and they're going to wonder why me and what the fuck, God, you know, are you, (laughs) are you there, God? It's me, (laughs) the traveler, you know? So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So 
Talk to me about your songwriting process. I'm assuming that you write by yourself on a guitar and then how do you write a song? How do you bring a song into a group sort of environment and get it, you know, polished in the studio? Well, we had the good fortune, Kevin and Conrad Shakroon and I had the good fortune that none of us were touring. We were financially okay to, you know, take a year and a half, you know, we, we kept, kept it together. And we developed the sound as three people on Kevin's back porch. Uh, were the songs already written all together? No, we just, I would bring, you know, it was a year and a half. I, you know, I had maybe two or three and then, then there was another one and another and we would play other, you know, just country songs and just kind of fuck around. The best combination of the way songs are written, the best way is when it all just comes out at once. And that song, Cowboy in the Hot Air Balloon, which is mm -hmm. the, you know, one of the rare moments of levity in, in this uh, <laughs> otherwise dark and isolated and lonely record, that did come out on tour. Just woke up one morning and there was the it was line. The, well, the, the first line was, you know, he stepped out of the bar and into the street when a hot air balloon swept him off his feet. I was like, oh, this has got potential. Yeah, and fantastic then it, line. The story, you know, just developed, and then a grizzly bear showed up, and it's like, fuck yeah, whoa, this is good. But others are combined, and and I'm sure you do this as well, where you you just write a bunch of stuff down in in a in a book, and then when it's time to make a record, you start mining those things that you that you've written, and um, and find like, oh, I see what the rhythm is in this, and. And the way that we would do it is just trial and error. I'll also give Steve Berlin, uh, who helped produce it, he's from Los Lobos, mm -hmm. the sax player. He helped produce it and he gets an A plus for his restraint. Because he just said, okay, cool, you're going to do it as a three piece. We're not going to add a bunch of overdubs because we did it live, basically. And do you enjoy the studio process? Uh... Yes and no. I, I try to make it as creative and rewarding as possible because I realize that that's really where we get to have our fun. After that's done, you know, mixing and then you start, you know, figuring out how you're going to put it out, <laughs> then you've had your fun. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Then everybody can say what they want to say about it and everybody can blah, blah, blah. But really, the creation of it should be the most, like, rewarding. We created the thing on a back porch, so basically we sat up in the studio and just had mics in front of us, and there was all, every instrument was bleeding into the other instruments, so if you fucked up, we had to start over again. Fantastic. Old school. It was very old school. How, how do you feel about, like logic versus intuition when you're in the studio? Well, of course, I'm an, an intuitive creature. I mean, that's just my style. And I'm prideful and I want to be able to put a vocal down from start to finish. Of course, yes. it doesn't always happen that way. Right. But similarly, I think people can get crazy in the studio, you know, like hearing weird time fluctuations and <laughs> tuning issues, microtonal tuning issues, you know, stuff like that. It's... Uh, it can, it, I think it can drive people insane and it takes a lot of discipline, as you said, to keep your eye on the prize. Your brain is sometimes not, oftentimes, not your friend. You oh, can, no, God, yeah. You know, you can justify anything. You can, you can, someone can have some idea and say, well, we should do this. And then they'll have all these reasons why you should do this. But at the same time, you're feeling like, no, that's, that's a bad idea. I don't like that idea. Yeah, I really believe in the feeling. Yes. Like, I don't feel you have to articulate or justify. I think if it feels wrong, then it's wrong. Yes. 
Of course, that can drive people insane too. It's like, I don't know. I just don't, I'm just not feeling it can drive people insane, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, I think, one of the great privileges of having a long career is you can look back and really learn from previous episodes where you you felt confused or or you went against your better judgment and then like you just said you can look back and go you know what I was right that was not right for me and I should have stuck to my guns you know yeah do you by the time you've finished a record do you feel surprised at what you have done uh yes always mm-hmm. um, I'm surprised that certain songs rise up in in some way that i didn't expect and other ones sometimes are just yeah that's good how do you know when something's finished i don't think anybody knows right when something is finished in adverted commas oh i think that's just intuition again it's finished when you feel like yeah that's a good representation of it but see you guys are building things mm-hmm. and and you could you could build that you know 10 stories or 50 stories high Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have that kind of um, <laughs> patience <laughs> yeah. or vision to do. Maybe at some point I will, but not so far. I, I like things just very economical and simple. And, and, and you guys have this uh, wonderful ability to, to make things grand and, and, uh, and, and just, you know, massively beautiful uh, and, or, you know, terrifying. So when you're... When you're writing songs, are you storytelling or are you pursuing a way of expressing yourself through other characters? The ones that actually work are stories that that come from personal experience. You know, I may not have been that person who's on the road, but the, the feeling that I have for what happens to them, if it's very personal, then it's, you know, that, then it, it actually has more meaning um but how do you know when it's when it's finished if you have you know many tracks and and many things is that something you leave to the to somebody else or do you just say no we need more or no we need less i think it's fair to say in garbage i'm the one who pulls the plug always i'm like that's enough that's it that's enough (laughs) and i think I think it's because you get a feeling, you know, when you're hearing something over and over and over again, and then something just clicks and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm really, I get the f- excited feeling. I'm like, that's it. It's done, you know. But it's so seductive to just, oh, there's this one more little thing. What, mm-hmm. what if we just had, there's this but other see, little. I'm, like- I'm not easily seduced, John. That's oh. why I'm so effective in garbage. That's why we're, we've got such a really good relationship, working relationship. Um, no, we're a, a good team that way because obviously the rest of the band are way more content to sit, hold up in a studio and, and noodle around and experiment yeah. and have fun. I have much less patience than my bandmates. And I think actually it's been a very effective partnership as a result. You know, I, I, I literally do say that's it. It's done. That's enough. We're moving on. <laughs> And God bless them over the years, I think they come to trust that. I have a funny experience of once a record is done, who are you going to play that record for first? And who did you play Fables in a Foreign Land for first? And what was the reaction? And was the reaction what you hoped for? Oof. Uh, (laughs) Yes, yes and yes. And I played it from my partner, Chrissy. And, um, of course, she heard the songs developing. Is it finished by the time you play it for her? Or does she hear it as it goes along? 
she'll hear some rough mixes. Right. And she will actually, <laughs> in, in past records, when I was able to overdub vocals, she would just say, uh, I don't think you're done. I think you need to do, I think you need to do that again. <laughs> Which was at first like, what? How dare you? I very dare you. And then um, you just get over yourself and you think, oh, maybe, yeah, you're right, of course. But I, I'm of the belief that a good reason to make a record at all is to play it for your friends, play it for your contemporaries, your peers, whoever, whoever might understand it. And if they like it, then good. If it sells 200,000 records, which I don't know that people even do anymore, or gets 8 billion streams, great. But that's not going to make you any happier. That's not going to make you feel any more um, satisfied or rewarded. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. How, how about you? Oh, I hate playing it for people and I always get my feelings hurt. <laughs> really? Yeah, I mean, oh. yeah, it's wild, actually. I've, I have, I think that's why I have such a love of our audience, because they're the only ones I can rely on for mm. a positive reaction. Like, I've, I've had a very unpleasant time playing things for the first time, except for the very first record, you know, because there was such a buzz around the band. And so everybody was excited, including my friends and family. Right. Mm. But then that buzz kind of like ebbs away as you, you know, we're now, what, 25 years, 30 years into our career. My friends are well over it and my family are not remotely excited. Um, and if I play anything <laughs> for them, they just look awkward and tense, <laughs> probably because I look awkward and tense. But um, yes, it's an, it's an unpleasant experience. My, the last, for No Gods, No Masters, which was the most recent record I played for my father, who's 85, granted, but I played it for him. And his comments were the following, hmm, you're singing too low in this song. Then they were, hmm, you're singing too high in this song. And then the third comment was, is this Booch singing? And I went, all right, we're done. And <laughs> I oh, think we got into, yeah, it was just awful. We'd got into like song number four and we were done. And, and I just have sort of given up playing it for people who love me, mm. which I think is fascinating because I'm sure everybody thinks I would like, you know, I'm coming home and from the studio and playing it for people. I mean, my husband obviously is fantastic. I'm not including him in this. There's a couple of friends that I've actually stopped giving it to them because I, I, I realized they just like, um, the fact that it's new, and then oh. they're and it's a bit like the short attention span. They're just on to the next thing. Yeah, and that is that is that drives me insane. I I I hate that so much because you put time so much time and effort into something. You know, this was probably four years in the making, and then it's like you know you just put something on Instagram and you're scrolling past a fucking dog doing a stupid trick. And then there's a, you know, something you worked on for four years. And then there's a, you know, then there's another band playing and, and you just swipe right past it. <laughs> How have you made your piece with, like you mentioned earlier on that, you know, you could sell 200,000 records and it still wouldn't buy you happiness. Hmm. At the same time, it's always gratifying, like you say, to have people come to your shows and listen to your records. But it's getting increasingly difficult for artists like us um, who are not necessarily mainstream pop artists to mm. have our records even reach an audience, let alone get judged by an audience. You know, it's so complicated now. What are the main sort of changes you've seen in the, in the industry over the course of your long and glorious career? <laughs> long and storied 
career. Um, yeah, but that's, you, you don't want it any other way. Trust me, John Doe. My friend who passed away several years ago, Elliot Smith, uh, mm. once said, I was just relieved when I didn't have to be in the big game, meaning yeah. like the pop world. Sure. And he never could be. You know, he had that one brush with... Uh, the movie. Uh, with a, yeah, with a Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I'm, I was totally relieved when I didn't have to worry about being on a major label. And I mean, you guys had, had some, you know, big fucking hits and Mm -hmm. moments, you know, which is, which is why you guys play in, in theaters and sheds and X sometimes still plays in rock and roll clubs. And, Mm -hmm. but that's okay. I mean, if you don't, if you don't find peace with that, you'll never be happy. And, and I, I value some satisfaction and happiness and, you know, gratitude much higher than that. And, but it's a lot of it is just sticking to it. And, and I think we're really fortunate in that we have this long career and we're not just starting out because starting out right now would be hellish. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. I, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, young bands that, that are, that are doing pretty good and they're taking a, a bunch of pages from the punk rock and indie world of, like get out there and just keep doing it, and sooner or later you're going to find your audience and just work your ass off, and that's great. It's sort of interesting that we've finally gotten past that idea that young generations of musicians feel like they have to get famous overnight. Like I do feel like you know, with the advent of the internet, that suddenly did allow for some artists to just blow up overnight, which never happened in our day, you know, when we were struggling to to get started. That just didn't yeah. happen. You had to work and work and work yeah. and play and play and play. And then maybe a decade later, at least in my case, it was a decade later, people started coming to some of the shows I was playing at. But yeah. probably to see the drum, the producer of, of Nirvana, you know, rather than come and see me. But <laughs> I, I didn't care. It's like at last there was an audience, you know. But it took a decade of work on my part and tenacity. And I don't know if that's ever really talked about as much as it should be of that kind of, you know, insane work ethic and tenacity, you know. And I was wondering where that comes in from you. You know, like, why do you keep doing this? God, God if I know. <laughs> no, seriously, I'm serious. Why, why do you do uh, I, I honestly think it's either in you or not. Mm-hmm. I think it's you, it's, it, it, all has to do with um, life force. Whether you're you want to find things, you're curious, you're expanding, you're you know, and, and that's what I, especially in the last ten years, what I think is important. As you get older, if you start contracting, then you're going to end up living in like a in one room, and that's a bummer. <laughs> People that contract, they they don't have friends and they don't they don't have influences and they. They isolate themselves and then they, they, you know, eventually kind of lose their fucking minds. But I think a lot of it has to do with like how much you move around in the day, you know, <laughs> whether you uh, sit on the sofa or, or you get up and go outside. And is your relationship to what you do, being, being a working musician, which to me is the biggest compliment of all time, I think, to be a working musician, has your relationship to that changed in, in that? Has your view of it expanded as you've gotten older? You know, your view of your discipline? Mm. I've actually tried to be a little bit more disciplined and work and sing, even when I'm not touring and stuff like that. Maybe this last couple of years has added to that. And how, how do you keep your like sharpness going when you're not performing, when you're not playing in the band? 
when you're young, you're really, you roam free, right? You go anywhere at the drop of a hat, you'll say yes to anything. You mm -hmm. just want to get out there and run, right? At least that was how it was for me. And then I realized as I've gotten older, you really have to engineer your own life. Otherwise it shrinks, as he so rightly said. And so I am always trying to battle my desire to go into my shell. I always have to push against that and go out and go to museums and get inspired and listen to new records and make sure I'm not like, like make sure I'm tuned into what's happening, you know, in the young generations of musicians, but also to those of, you know, the ancestors who did it first and educate, educate, educate always, I think to me is what keeps me really excited and fueled. And I think in some ways what I do is easier for me now that I'm older than it was when I was younger. And therefore it's more pleasurable. Uh, I hear what you're saying because I, I would, if I never play in a black box that smells like bleach because they just had to mop the floor. <laughs> I was worried what you were going to say there. Mm, God, uh, if I never have to do that again, I will be fine with that. You know, we're actively trying to play smarter, not harder, to work smarter, not harder, and, and to, you know, get get paid better and, and not, you know, go out there and grind it out for two or three months in a row. You know, that, that's bullshit. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you, you know, you, you will lose it. <laughs> You'll literally lose it. Is there an image of, of Shirley Manson sitting in her sun porch with a guitar singing uh, Joni Mitchell songs? Uh, is, is, does that happen? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. You know, I don't know. I, I feel like I don't want to picture a future because I just think it's dangerous to have expectations. Do you know what I mean? Like, or oh, yeah. I fixed ideas of where your future should lie. Right. So I'm willing to go wherever, you know, the fancy takes me for as long as I can, uh, for as long as they let me run. Because I feel yes. like it's your peers and the young generations that move forward that allow an artist like me to have a career. Yeah. I'm at yeah. the mercy of the people. And I have absolutely submitted myself to that idea. And I, I sort of see what I do now as being in service. And once I came to that conclusion, I thought, oh, I have a, I have a future, you know, because being a woman in the music industry, particularly a 55-year-old, yes. can be a very dangerous, precarious place for any musician, but very much so for female musicians. Absolutely. Yeah. I was nervous, right? And then when I came to realize I was in service, I'm like, oh, I have a future. I'm good. I'm golden. I can just keep being an artist. And if I do mm -hmm. good work... I'll be allowed to stick around. That's very zen of you in a in a good way. Yeah, I think it's I don't think it's zen necessarily. I wish it, I wish I was zen, John. Isn't that one of the tenets of of Zen Buddhism is to is to be of service? Oh, I don't know. I I have never studied Buddhism, I'm ashamed to say. I I just, you know, I just hear stuff surely. I don't actually study anything. <laughs> I just <laughs> I just hear things at, at fabulous cocktail parties and then I repeat them to my friends to try Hilarious. to impress them. <laughs> so listen, before I before I lose you, I want you to tell me what's happening next. The record comes out when? Uh May 20th. And but but we've already put out a couple of singles and videos. We're going to do some touring with the with the trio and uh in June, and X is doing a big tour with the Psychedelic Furs, which is so exciting. I'm so jealous. Oh my God, I hate you right now. I love the Psychedelic Furs. Richard Butler, for my money, may be like the best male front person. 
He's certainly one of them. I tell you, he doesn't have a shtick. It's so wonderful. He just is like in the music and he just does his thing and he has this way of like moving and dancing and it's just like, you're the fucking coolest. Yeah. Yeah, he's glorious. Underrated, I think, actually. He doesn't get a lot of love these days. But he's, yeah. he's been sort of forgotten about, which is insane because he's such a great writer, an incredible singer. And they, as you, you know, said, they they put out a record in 2020 called And it was Made marvelous. It. Oh, so good. So good. It's like classic psychedelic yes. first. And and you know what? That that's kind of what we tried to do with the X record. This is like, this is gonna sound like X. And people who know what X sounds like are gonna be rewarded. You must have been very excited by how um, X was received on that on that last record. I mean, it well, got such glorious yes. reception. We enjoyed that, yeah. But um, <laughs> part of it was because there was nothing else to do. <laughs> I was COVID for you. Let me just before we finish. I was COVID. Uh you know what? It was fine. I, I mean, I I was so <laughs> it was totally fine because I was so fucking grateful that um, Chrissy and I had bought a house three years before that. Four years. Three, yeah, three, it's hard to, you know, time is weird these days. Yeah. So the landlord couldn't lose their mind and, like, kick us out. Oh, thank God. And we had a house, and, and we had some friends that, you know, after maybe the first eight months we'd see on our patio, you know, or see in the backyard. And then Kevin and Conrad and I were working on this record, and we had some purpose. But getting COVID uh, last December sucked, as you know, because you got mm-hmm. it, what, just... A few months ago, right? A couple of weeks ago, A couple of weeks ago. I got no symptoms at all. I was so lucky. Really? We had, ours were um, very mild, and I'm glad that uh, I had my vaccines and boosters and things like that. That was was sort of the question that I had, is that how do you keep singing if you're not playing live or making records? Do you play guitar? Do you play piano? Do you, like, have a regimen for, for doing that? I play piano a little. Yeah. I play guitar poorly. Yeah. But I sing all the time. You know, like often when I'm exercising, I'm like, <laughs> really? At the top of my voice. Yeah. Yeah. I sing all the time. I love that. I love image. to sing. It's so glorious. Um, but no, what my final question was for you is what remains unexplored for you as an artist? And oh, gosh. where are you going to go with that? Big question. Uh, that is to be determined. I mean, I I, I, I don't know. I, I do want to make more X records. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know for solo stuff. I'm happy that we got to this point with these songs and, and this sound. Um, but I, I don't know yet. I, I think it'll something will be more much more personal on on the next record mm-hmm. uh, on the next the next group of songs. And I'm I'm trying to encourage Xene also to to invest some, you know, deeper personal feelings. Like that that one song of yours, that... Um, uh, un, un, oh, Uncomfortably Me. Uncomfortably Me, that's such a great chorus. Like, uncomfortably here, uncomfortably there. It's like <laughs> everybody can relate to that. And, and it's, but it's really um, vulnerable and, and, and beautiful, even though the music is just pumping it. And it's, it's also got a really good hook. Good, good hook, babe. Thanks, babe. Listen, John Doe, 
I wish you nothing but the loveliest of things in your life. And we in Garbage all love you and admire you. And this record is really beautiful. And I really hope for the very best for it. Here's a good question for you. Why is it that people don't have more empathy after going through a really fucking hard time? And is it just the news cycle that makes everybody so motherfucking angry? It's like, you just went through a terrible time. Why are you so angry at everybody? I think people are scared. And when people are scared, they're aggressive. When you realize that there's nothing but chaos, I think it terrifies people. And when people are terrified, they act abysmally, you know, so. But there are lovely things happening and there are great people and, you know, hope springs eternal. But it's been a very dark time. I think everyone's got post-traumatic disorder. And when people would say, oh, I just want to get back to normal. And it's like, no, that's, you've just been through a war. Aren't you supposed to take something away from that and, and you know, operate mm-hmm. on in a different way? Yeah, I mean, again, we haven't been through war. That's why we should be all very, very grateful, you know. I mean, yes. see what's going on around the world. It, it, truly, we are very, we're all very privileged, very lucky. Yes, we are. And I just hope that common sense prevails. I, I hope for a stronger leadership. You know, I think we're flailing around all over the world, it seems, that governments are failing their people over yeah. and over and over again. And again, when people feel that there's nobody at the helm with any common sense, uh, they panic. I feel mm-hmm. panicked. You know, I, I, everyone I know feels panicked. It's, it's terrifying, you know. Um, but, you know, this is a gloomy, doomy conversation, which we promised ourselves we would try and avoid. <laughs> so let's avoid it. And I have to zoom off because I have my physio. <laughs> Go do it. Yes, I will. And um, like I said, we'll track you down and we'll find you, John Doe. There is no escaping us now. Thank God. Thank God I can count on that. Yes, you can count on me, always. I'm your Huckleberry. Thanks for listening to the Talk House podcast, and thanks to Shirley Manson and John Doe for chatting. If you like what you heard, please follow Talk House on your favorite podcast platform and all social media channels. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan, and the Talk House theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.